Let's start with questions. Anybody have questions? <laughs> uh, so we're going to start two mini-series. Sort of, I'm calling mini-series. We'll see how, how many they are on Wednesday nights. Uh, tonight, next week, and Lord willing, the following week, we're going to consider the subject of fasting. Uh, and then I'll explain a little bit more about that. And then following that, we're going to consider questions 174 and 175 of the larger catechism, and also 173, which has to do with how we prepare ourselves for Lord's Supper, how we partake, what we should be doing as we partake, and then what should we do afterwards as we go home and so on. So that's going to be, for the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing. Those are two suggestions that were given to me, and I thought they made sense and it would be helpful for everybody to think about those things. So why, why fast? Why talk about fasting? Well, in some uh, Western ecclesiastical calendars, so in church calendars in the Western world, uh, this time of the year is called what? Lent. And Lent is the 40 days between Ash Wednesday and, what, and the Resurrection, the Resurrection Sunday. So those 40 days. And they are supposed to represent the 40 days that Christ spent in the desert. In Matthew 4 and Luke 4, talk about those 40 days that Christ went to the desert before Satan tempted, uh, tempted him. And Lent is supposed to be a period of grief and self-denial that often includes fasting or giving up some luxury for the season. For some reason, chocolate is a popular thing to give up for, for Lent. Uh, Nick and I committed to give up kale. We're not eating kale during Lent. We're just sacrificing. Or any other time during the Yes. <laughs> now, Lent is not a biblical festival. It's not a biblical holy day. And I myself am not convinced of the propriety of observing Lent. Uh, it, it's, it's a late tradition. I, I know that a lot of Presbyterian churches, or not a lot, of, but some Presbyterian churches, uh, more of the high church kind, uh, kind of push Lent. Uh, I don't know that we have the biblical warrant to establish this particular holiday, especially when we're connecting two, two aspects of Jesus' life that are not necessarily connected other than they are in the life of the same person, which is the 40 days in the desert and then the, uh, the resurrection um, there. Having said that, though, the Bible does speak of fasting. And so it is important for us to understand it. And that's what gave really the, the impetus for this mini-series. Jesus himself taught on fasting. And uh, the passage we're going to look at tonight is Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. And as we read, you, you're going to see that this is one of those passages that at first, it seems so simple. And yet, when you start actually thinking about what it says you realize that the subject of fasting is much broader than simply not eating. And we're going to explore that tonight and next week and maybe the following week. So, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read together verses 16 through 18. Jesus says, Moreover, when you fast... Do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, 
for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees it sees in secret will reward you openly. This, this whole portion of the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6, Jesus is addressing three areas of life that were large elements in the practical life of the righteous. Uh, if you were a righteous person, you'd be doing these three things that Jesus lists here. So it's not like he picked up the three most important things that a Christian can do, but he's interacting with the practice of the time. And at the time, if you're a Pharisee, which is considered the most righteous um, sect, the most righteous group of people in town, you would pray, you would give alms, and you would fast. So he picks those three things. I must have mispronounced something, but my son is laughing at me. Uh, so usually that means I said something unintendedly funny. Because that's just me. I'm f- funny person I'm so, good. Um, so the three uh, these three acts are, are listed here in chapter six with fasting being the last one of the three notice in verse one of chapter six and the New King James will sound a little different than what should sound uh, in verse one of chapter six it says take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by men the word charitable should actually be righteous, righteous deeds. So be sure that you don't do your righteous deeds, here described by giving, by praying, and by fasting, to be seen by man. That that's not your, your impetus, your impulse. And as I said, Jesus chose these, apparently chose these three, because those are the three, the big, three big ones with the Pharisees that he's interacting with throughout the Sermon on Mount, the religious leaders of the time. Now, you know, there are several sects of Judaism in the first century. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, and then you had the, the Essene, Essenes, which you don't see them very much in the New Testament, but you have a lot of, of Sadducees and Pharisees. Uh, there's another group called the Herodian, but they're a political group, not a religious group. Now, the Pharisees were the, the popular teachers. They were the ones that taught in the synagogues. The Sadducees were the priestly caste. Usually, they were upper, upper class. They were the ones that worked in the temple. Every high priest would, would come from the Sadducees, not from the Pharisees. But the Pharisees were the ones that were popular. They were the ones that people liked to, to, to follow. Those are the ones that taught them. So they're considered to be the ones that were the example of Righteousness, and that's why Christ is interacting with their teaching because they are the teachers of the law. They are the ones popularizing certain doctrines, and and that's what Jesus is referring to every time in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, "You have heard it said." He's not quoting the Old Testament when he says that. He's actually referring to the popular teaching of the time that often was a misinterpretation of what God said in the Old Testament. So these three things were big with the Pharisees. That's why he's interacting with them. And also, these three acts highlight practical obedience in the three relationships that make up all of life. These three acts, giving, praying, and fasting, highlight the three relationships that make up all of life. What are the three relationships that make up all of life? 
Think of the two greatest commandments. What's the first one? So relationship with God. What's the second commandment? Great commandment. Love others. That's another. As you. So there's three relationships we let me solve. Self, God, others. And you can see in these three acts, giving, praying, and fasting, and exemplifying those three relationships. Giving, relationship to others. Praying, relationship to God. And fasting, relationship to ourselves. And Jesus warns those who are his disciples to do their, to do their righteous deeds with the right heart attitude. We see that in verse 1. But we also see that in verses 3 and 4. Jesus says, But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. He says that again in verse 6. But you, when you pray... Go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And he says it again in verse 18 that we read together, where he says, So that you do not appear to man to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So Jesus says that his followers, his disciples, will practice his acts of righteousness with the motivation to please the Lord, with the right heart attitude. Now, any of these three ways of giving, praying, and fasting that Jesus describes, do you strike you as contradictory, as... You should, right? Because we just prayed together. We didn't go into a secret closet to pray. Um, we take a public offering on Sundays, right? On, we- on Wednesdays, the hunter kids are known to just kind of toss those coins in that plate. And we hear them hitting the bottom of... Uh, and yet, Jesus says here that we're supposed to be doing this in secret, not even your left hand is supposed to know what your right hand is doing. So are we then not following what God is commanding as what Jesus is teaching us here? So these are things that you should be thinking when you read the Bible. But how does it relate to what we're doing, to what I'm doing, to other parts of the Bible? So any thoughts on that? Is the difference between corporate and personal? It could be. Okay, all right. I thought I heard another voice too from this quadrant over here. No? Yeah, remember that we have to take the whole Bible together, right? And Jesus himself prays in public, right? Jesus, uh, the apostles pray to, uh, fast together, right? Jesus points out the widow giving the hermite, you know, said, look, look. You know, he's not trying to rob her of a blessing by saying, look, look, right? Is really what he addresses is not quite really. This is not a manual for, for the manner in which we do, as far as you can only pray if you're by yourself in a small room called the closet. You can only give if it's in secret, nobody can see. But it's the attitude of the heart that's emphasizing here. 
Don't do any of these things to be seen by men. Don't. Uh, uh, the Pharisees literally, literally played, hired people to play an instrument at the moment they were putting something in the offering so that people look. What, what's that noise coming from? And, oh, look, he's giving money at that time. They would pray, they, they, they would pray on the busiest corners of the street so that people could hear their eloquent prayers. And that's what Jesus is addressing. Why is it that you're doing it? Why is it that you're giving? Why is it that you're praying? Why is it that you're fasting? Is that to be seen by other people? Or is it to obey God and to please God and to seek out? That's, that's what Jesus is addressing here. And also notice that in all, three, in all three instances, Jesus assumes that his disciples will practice righteousness and specifically, specifically these three acts. He doesn't say, if you pray. He doesn't say, if you fast. He doesn't say, if you give. He says, when. Verse 2, he says, therefore, when you do charitable deed. In verse 5, he says, and when you pray. And in verse 16, he says, when you fast. He assumes that his disciples will be doing these three, these three things. Notice that nowhere, as you read the passage, he, he, he doesn't, nowhere he criticizes the Pharisees for doing these things. He criticizes them for doing them wrongly. And he says, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. They are doing it wrongly. You have to do it right with the right heart. And that leads us to conclude that we as disciples of Christ should be giving, should be praying, and should be fasting as well. Any questions or comments so far? All right. And Jesus then goes on to expose the wrong way of fasting. Look at verse 16. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. I surely say to you, they have their reward. The Pharisees of Jesus' time fasted twice a week. We know that from the parable. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector in Luke chapter 18? The Pharisee prays and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. The Didache, which is a second century manual of Christian living, um, teaches, says that the Pharisees fasted every Monday and every Thursday. Those are their fasting days. And on their fasting days, the Pharisees attempted to look as miserable as they could possibly look. That's what Jesus is talking about here in verse 16. Sort of thing. They contorted their faces to the point of unrecognition. They wore sackcloth and put ashes on their hair. So to, to make sure, they didn't want to waste a fast. They want to make sure people saw it. So they, how are you? Oh, I'm so hungry. I'm doing it for Jesus, but I'm so hungry for the Lord. That's how they would, they would do their thing. And Jesus tells us here then in verse 16 that they did all that to receive the praise of men, to be thought of men as, right, as the righteous ones. That's what was their desire. They were slaves to men's opinions. The, they, fear, they feared men. The, the fear of men dominated their lives. They were 
ultimately concerned with man's approval, not God's. And Jesus tells us that when we do what might be right with the exclusive intent of receiving the praise of man, then receiving the praise of man is all that we get. Does it make sense to you? If that's what we're seeking, yes, we're going to get it. But that's it. There's no glory ascribed to God. There's no eternal blessing that comes from it. There's no smile from God upon us as we seek the approval of men. Even if we're doing something that is at least outwardly correct. So if our intent in being religious is the praise of the people around us, the praise of the people around us will be all the heaven that we get. That's the point that Jesus is making with the Pharisees here. But he doesn't leave it there. He also tells us the right way of fasting, verses 17 and 18. In verse 17, he says, But you then, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. What is Jesus teaching here? When you fast, you do what? Look normal, yes. Just go about life in the same way that you would if you weren't fasting. Now, some look at this and... um, interpreted this passage as a call to be extra joyful, extra made up when you're fasting. So to go the opposite way as the Pharisees. I don't think that's what Jesus means, because what, what would you be doing again if you did that? You'd be drawing attention to yourself again. All that Jesus is saying is, don't make a big deal about it. Shower, put on cologne, perfume as you would, wear regular clothes as you normally do. Don't, you don't need to spread out that you are fasting. And he says the fasting is something between you and the Lord in verse 18, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So you don't need to proclaim it to the whole world. Know that you are fasting. Now, this is not the same as saying that more than one person cannot fast as a joint effort. Because the apostles did that. The apostles fasted together. At least the disciples did. We see that in Acts 13. So Acts 13, the Antiochian presbytery gets together to commission Paul, at the time Barnabas and Saul, to go on their first missionary journey. And as they're seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit, what do they do together as a group? They fast and they pray for blessings and directions for Saul, Barnabas and Saul. So again, ultimately it comes down to the attitude of the heart when you're doing it. And by now you're saying, you started by saying that this passage is not as easy to understand as you may look. What's so hard to understand about, about fasting? It seems pretty straightforward. Don't eat. Don't look miserable. Do it for the Lord. Three points, we're done. Well, I don't know if you realize, there's very little instruction in the Bible about what the purpose of fasting is and how it is to be done. Jesus says, when you fast, don't do like the Pharisees. And leaves at that. Now, there is, seems to, here it seems obvious that the act of fasting means abstaining from food, it is not that clear when we consider other passages in the Bible. And how does fasting fit with the New Covenant and Paul's teaching concerning food? This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, 
Now, you might want to turn there is a, a little bit longer. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul says this. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and then look what he says that the, the, the bad guys are going to be doing. And commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now there's two ways to interpret this passage. One might be that uh, this group is only forbidding people from eating certain foods. Like uh, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, you're not allowed to eat sea, uh, seashells, shellfish. Right? So they forbid you, and you're sinning if you eat shellfish. But this, the, 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 there's also a very viable interpretation that this group was actually commending mandatory fast days as a religious observa- uh, uh, observation as well. So it's, it's not as clear. It's, just, it's fasting just abstaining from eating food, and how does it... Uh, work with the rest of the scriptures. Also, simply to abstain from food is an exercise that strengthens our self-will, which is not to be strengthened. To just master the ability to not eat at certain times, it, it just it, it helps us, our self-will, which may not be, which is, which is not a good thing for us either, if that's all that we're doing. Uh, Paul says that the Colossian heresy, something that was very early in the Christian Church in Colossians chapter 2, he says that they come around and they tell you not to touch, not to taste, not to handle, and they do these things with false humility and neglect of the body. That's the idea of not eating, of fasting. So just not eating is not necessarily uh, the same as biblical fasting. What does fasting come from? What, where does the idea of fasting come from? Have you ever thought about that? Is not part of human instinct, right? To deprive oneself of food, you know, is not something that you find naturally. So where does fasting come from? Fasting is not essentially a Jewish or Christian thing. Several religious, several religions have practiced fasting through the centuries. No, Buddhism, Hinduism, they practice fasting as well. And Hinduism is a more ancient religion than Christianity and uh, as Mosaic Judaism as well. Fasting is not even essentially a religious thing. Can you think of fasts that are not religious? Would you be willing to express what those might be? <laughs> Fasting before surgery. Okay, Brandon? Right, yeah. So we can we can kind of formulate bigger categories. So uh, uh, health-driven fasting, those are the two. Politically-driven fasting. Have you ever heard of Mahatma, Mahatma Gandhi? 
one of the, the one of the main tools used for in fighting for Indians India's freedom or uh, independence was fasting, right? Political fasting, not religious fasting, but political fasting. Um, health, right? We talk about several organizations promote regular fasting as a means of a healthier life. Um, a big movement now is the intermittent fa- intermittent fasting as a weight loss um, um, program, right? And then, have you ever thought of fasting as an expression of self of controlling self and others, of manipulation? Can you think of a of a way that fasting is used as a manipulative manipulative tool to control yourself and to control others? Yeah, anorexia primarily is fasting. Self is fasting designed to either control the only thing in your life that you think you can control, or to control other people outside of you. So fasting is not just necessarily the idea of fasting is not necessarily a religious thing. Are you with me so far? Now, though not essentially Jewish or Christian, fasting was part of the religious experience of God's people in the pages. Of the scripture, so it doesn't have to be religious, but it was part of, of God's people's religious experience in the Bible. How many times do you think people are commanded to fast in the whole of the Bible? Any ideas? Both in the Old and New Testament. Twenty times, Lord aside. Twenty going once. Twenty no. <laughs> Scott. Okay, so Scott says three. Any other guess? God, uh, in the Bible, people, the people of God are commanded to fast exactly one time. And that's the Day of Atonement. And that's it. That's the only command in the Scriptures for fasting. Uh, I heard somebody mouthing Esther. There's no command there. Esther asks, can you, can you please... Fast with me so I can make this decision. But the only command in the law of God, in the word of God to fast is Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement. And uh, actually, most translations, uh, the word uses, you shall afflict your soul. And that's, uh, that's how it's translated often, is that Leviticus 16, 29 through 31. And the idea of literally, it, to afflict your soul is to be bent over with hunger. That's what the affliction of the soul that they're talking about here. So the idea of fasting, that's something you had to do on the Day of Atonement. Now, why do you think God's people were commanded to fast on the Day of Atonement? What's going on in the Day of Atonement? Do you remember? Sure, but there's all kinds of things going on right there in the Day of Atonement. Remember, there's couple of goats, a lamb, an ox, several priests, right? The scapegoat, where they lay their hands and let them to die in the desert. The other goat that will be uh, slaughtered, a lamb will be slaughtered as well, and an ox will be slaughtered. And the fasting on that day was done as a sign of repentance and mourning for sin. And in anticipation of the high priests going into the holy, most holy place once a year to make atonement for their sins. 
there was this anticipation. Is God going to accept the sacrifice this year? Is the high priest going to come out? And they're fasting in that anticipation of the prospect of forgiven sins. Well, the, the epistle to the Hebrews says that this observance has been fulfilled in Christ. And we no longer fret whether our sins will be forgiven because it is the blood of Christ that is upon the heavenly mercy seat. So we don't do the kind of fasting that they did in the Day of Atonement anymore. Okay? Now, even though that was the only time it was commanded, fasting became the, the regular practice of God's people in the Old Covenant, especially following the Babylonian exile. Now, it's not commended, but it's regularly practiced. In the New Testament, God's people fasted also, though we tend to find this practice earlier in the apostolic church. Now, we don't find a lot of it in the epistles or in the later books, but we find it earlier in the Gospels and early in the book of Acts as well. Uh, Lord, the Lord Jesus himself fasted. Can you think of a time? There's only one recording, one record in, history of, of, in his history of his fasting, which was... The 40 days, right? That's the only time that's recorded, at least. We don't know if he fasted more, but that's the, the only time that's recorded. As a matter of fact, Jesus was not known as an ascetic. He was not known as one who fasted all the time. Remember the, 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 uh, the contrast that people made with, between him and John the Baptist? John the Baptist comes and not eating, you tell him, you tell him that he's a weirdo. I come eating, and then you tell him that I'm a sinner. So which one is it that's going to, is going to be? Right? They said, John the Baptist comes just eating honey and locusts, and you say he has a demon. I come eating and drinking, and you say that I'm a wine-bibber and a drunkard. Um, we, uh, there are other examples of people fasting. Anna the prophetess served God with fasting in Luke chapter 2. Uh, the disciples fasted between the crucifixion and the resurrection. This, that's the implication of Matthew 9. We're going to look at it uh, another time. Cornelius was described as a God-fearing man, fasted and prayed, and the Lord came to him in Acts chapter 10. As I said, the Antiochian Presbytery got together and fasted and prayed to see if they should send Saul and Barnabas to the mission field. Paul himself says that he fasted while appointing elders in every church. Married couples in 1 Corinthians 7 may be apart for a little while in order to fast. See that in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5. And Paul himself says he fasted quite often. If you find that in 2 Corinthians. But the question still remains, are these examples normative for us to follow? In other words, is there such thing as a Christian fast? And I'm going to end here tonight. Well, the, the question was answered already. But we're going to come pick it up again next Wednesday. And you just think about the things that were said tonight and see how that question was answered already. All right? So let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are God who gives you your word, and that is it's so enjoyable to study it. We pray that we'll be hearers of your word and then doers of it as well. We pray dismiss us with your blessings tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.